0: You're listening to a sermon from the series, Church 101, an FFC teaching series through Titus. For more sermons and information, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, let's take our uh, Bibles and locate Titus chapter 1. The last seven verses of the first chapter is where we're going to camp out today. And while I'm just speaking very transparently and honestly and forthrightly, I want to make this statement to you. If you leave today with any sense of and I told you so, I knew I was right, that's the way to tell them kind of attitude. If there's any sense of arrogance or pride or haughtiness when you walk out those double doors today then you have misheard your pastor, all right? You may have heard the words I've said, but you haven't heard the message I'm bringing. Everything I say today, everything that we're going to see from God's word, every illustration, every point, every principle, every doctrinal, um, non-negotiable command, every preferential application, all come from a heart of great love for this body of believers, all right? And a great obligation to our master and his call upon my life and the role I play as one of the pastors slash elders in this church. There is nothing driving this but deep love and deep obligation, all right? So say, Todd, why do you say that? Because we're going to talk about one of the roles and aspects or or jobs of elders and pastors and how it relates to you, the sheep. To dive into that, let's take the 15 questions that came in last week. Now, you're already thinking, man, 15 questions. How are we going to get through that and preach from Titus chapter 1, the last seven verses, right? Let's fly through the questions. But these all came in last week. We had no real chance to take Q&A live, but I did record them. And so I let the folks know, asked them, hey listen, we'll answer them as we start Sunday. Here they are, question one, must an elder be married, must he have children? This takes care of the first five questions off the bat, okay? Because it was asked a number of ways in in different formats. We would say as elders that no, an elder does not have to be married, nor does he have to have children. We would lean on a couple of things. First of all, the Apostle Paul's example of one who wasn't currently married when he penned those pastoral epistles, Notice what I said, currently married. Most historians believe the Apostle Paul was abandoned by his wife upon his conversion. There's no verse to prove that. There is some indication in 1 Corinthians 7, and there's some historical aspects in regards to what it took to be a Pharisee. In addition to that, we would say that the verses in 1 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, would show us how to be married rightly, not necessarily how to just be. Does that make sense? So it's not trying to describe how every person should be married. It's trying to describe how a married person should be married rightly. So we would say there's room for single men to be elders. And men with no children to be elders. All right? Just a good answer to the question. I will say this on the heels of that because it affects the other answers. There are really good people who disagree with that. I know some in Ames and some churches there. I know some in Des Moines area. I know some friends of mine from my schooling and my training. Who would say, no, we feel like uh, marriage and children are required or else you really don't really understand the whole idea of shepherding and raising up people. So just be aware of that. This would not be something that I would close a fist at and say we're going to blows over it. All right. But as the church here, we would say this. These verses describe how to be rightly married. But no, it's not a requirement to be married or have children. But if you are, be sure it's done this way. That was a good answer. Next question, number six. Already there. Can you believe it? How can one tell if they qualify if they have no wife or family they oversee? And see, this is why some folks would hold then to the previous or different view that you have to be married or have children. Can they really be helpful as leaders when they don't have some of the same relationships to counsel others on? Yes, they can be helpful. If you were to hold to the view that they can not be helpful, that's your prerogative, your opinion. I respect that. I would say other environments and laboratories give us insight into how they handle relationships, especially if they're making disciples of all nations already within their current environment. That's a good indication they would continue that as a church elder. Does that make sense? So we can just take Matthew 28 and say, are they reproducing themselves even if they're single with no children? If the answer is yes, that's a great indication they have a heart for this idea of Spiritual reproduction, multiplication, overseeing that process of raising someone up. Can a man who has been divorced be an elder? Yes. As long as there is a biblical divorce in play, and we believe here there are two reasons that you could be biblically divorced abandonment by an unsaved spouse or adultery. We would not say that that mandates divorce, we would say it allows divorce. The heartbeat for every person ought to always be reconciliation. Amen? Because God hates divorce and because we want to hold marriage in high esteem. But we don't necessarily change the scriptures or pretend there aren't verses that lean into the idea of a biblical divorce. And so we'd say if an elder has been divorced, we would ask why, what brought it about, when did it happen. And then we'd lean in with other of those passage uh, qualifications, above reproach. We'd ask about their kids. Uh, are there accusations from an ex spouse? And we would just ask a lot of questions to make sure that not just this one woman man requirement is met, but that other ones are as well. Make sense? Hope I'm being succinct and clear and to the point. I'm trying hard to do that. Next questions Aren't there circumstances in families that cause them to be less than the biblical example required in Titus due to disobedience or waywardness among wife or kids? Yes, there are circumstances like that. So I would say, yes, that's true. So it's kind of a rhetorical question. Yes, it's true. Does that then disqualify the husband from leadership? I would say yes. What it doesn't do is make the husband unspiritual. Hear this, church. When a man says, I've got issues at home that I need to deal with, it is actually a godly spiritual move to prioritize his time and take care of those. So because someone says, man, I've got some issues at home I've got to deal with, he's not some rebel or pagan or, or, or unspiritual carnal person. Does that make sense? He's just doing what's right. He's moving to his area of priority. I think the, the tendency is, though, to act like the Bible does not call for this kind of action. Like, well, if your family doesn't line up, if your wife and kids, if there's not really a model to follow there, Don't worry about it. I completely disagree with that. I have some very personal conservative opinions about when that should take place and how that looks. That aren't necessarily based on precise verses. And every person and pastor has to work out when would this, where where is this line, how does this occur. What we have to say is this, though: there is a place when some things at home could be so awry that a man has to say. I've got to give my family every minute I have. And so an elders meeting and elders prayer time and elders study of the scriptures and teaching time, prep time, that's time I could give my family and they need it right now. So I would say yes to the first one and yes to the second one. Is there a lot to that? I'd say yes to that as well. If you want more conversation, talk to us. We, we, We love to have these conversations. But I'm just trying to answer the questions and make sure you get some insight from me and from us. Let's keep moving forward here. Do you feel the Bible views elders as leading by example or being an example by leading? I would say both, but primarily the first one. In fact, the Bible uses several uh, words to describe the idea of an elder being copyable, imitatable. He's a model. So yeah, I would say primarily the first one, but I would say both work. Next question. Is there an age requirement for elders? No. Do I have some opinions on that? Yes. Am I going to share them? No. (laughs) Next question. The Bible does say not a recent convert. What is recent? Again, we have opinions. We can all make guesses. Um, Okay, there's the answer to the question. There's not an age requirement. How can 1-6 be applied, especially in regards to children, without looking back at the past? I don't know if it can be. That's a very good question. It's the one about children. You may can look at the current situation and say, okay, they've got a 5-year-old, they've got a 3-year-old, they've got an 8-year-old, and say, how are they doing? But even in that, you're going to ask, how did they do when that child was 1? I mean, at some point, you have to say, is what you're doing working, to some degree? This is a very good question. This is one of the reasons that there are people among pastoral circles who believe, I know one one church in particular who believes this, and I, I wouldn't fault this, I don't hold to it, but I don't fault it. They say you can't be an elder unless you have been married and have raised your kids. It's their way of saying we see proof that you live what you say and that you can do the job. I don't hold to that. But this is why, because they feel like you can't really examine something that's happening. You must wait till the, the seed is born the fruit. Just, just an observation. So I would say to that question, how can it be applied? That's going to be a long answer. Um, but it probably, in some point, you have to look at what they're doing and say, how, is this working or not? And if not, what's going on in the past? And you just got to talk about that laboratory called family, You do, whether it's ongoing or in the past. How long does one six apply to a person's kids? I would say personally, as long as they're under your par- the parent's authority and are required then to be in submission. And there's a longer answer here that I didn't get into last week that I'm not going to do this week. But I would just tease you by saying this. In the ESV, it says that he must have believing children. I think a better translation is faithful children. The word there's an adjective, pistis. And it may actually mean, and I think it does, kids who are faithful. I'm just giving you the answer after all, aren't I? I can't even stop myself sometimes <laughs> in giving these. It actually made me. I think it does, kids who are faithful to be submissive to their parents. So how does 1-6 apply? How long does it apply? I think as long as a child is under a parent's authority, then you look for those traits. If someone's on their own, Living their own life, so to speak, and they're wayward and rebellious. I don't think that necessarily means an elder has to step down. The elder may choose to, by the way. He may say, out of being above reproach and for the sake of being a copy of model, it's just not in the best timing for me. He may. But I don't think scripture requires that if a child is outside of their home. And let's see here, if the Bible teaches churches to have elders and deacons, why don't all churches have this structure? I don't know the answer to that question, but I know the answer to the next one. If they don't, is the church unhealthy or wrong? I don't think they're wrong as in sinful, but I'll go on a limb here and give an opinion. I do think that churches that don't model plurality, because that's what we're asking for. The Bible teaches plurality of leadership. Are there different ways to accomplish that? Probably. Some use the term deacons and they actually mean elders. I would say to them, but then change the term. Why, why do you hold on to a term that doesn't mean what it's supposed to do? But maybe they've got thousand years tradition and they don't want to upset those who are, I don't know, you know. But there could be terms people use that, that accomplish the same thing, which is plurality, which is what God sets in place in the New Testament as the pinnacle principle of church government. Okay? If that's in place. I would say, oh, yeah, that's a good sign. But when plurality is absent, it's unhealthy. And on that, I would take a pretty strong stand. When plurality is absent, it's unhealthy. What you have then is really a dangerous situation of one person, and they could lead a lot of people astray. You say, well, Todd, I had no situation where it went great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's fortunate. Do you love exceptions? But more often than not. Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely even among spiritual people. And so it's good to have a collective plural body shepherding the church because the wolves are out there. Last question. Oh, actually second to last. Is it wrong to criticize an elder if they appear to be off God's word? It is wrong to criticize an elder in the, in the, uh, in the wrong way. Timothy says that if you have an accusation, you should bring it with two or three witnesses. So here's what I would say to you as a church: if you have a situation with an elder you think they're off biblically, go to an elder first, and say, "I have a concern," and share that, and then see if is this being let them work with you on is this corroborated in some ways, or is this just something that you're kind of ticked off about, or is there actual scriptural evidence? Does that make sense? So I think we all have to be willing that we're under a microscope. No one's going to be outside of that. But it's the way it's done, and the Bible gives us a pattern. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except in the presence of two or three witnesses. That's 1 Timothy. Let's just live by that. Make sense? Great. Last question. Is there anything missing from the list that you think is notable? I know who sent this question is, and I thought that's just that's awesome. I, I would never even thought about the question, and the answer is no. I've never even thought about the list from that angle. I see the list and think, there it is. Let's just live by it. Um, so I don't know. if They were thinking maybe something was behind the list that uh, they were. Th- I don't know, but I've never thought about something missing from the list. In fact, I, I've often thought, my there's a bunch on the list <laughs> already, right? Could we shorten that thing perhaps, right? Because would you not admit with me, there are, those, those are high requirements, aren't they? Why? So here's the last question that I'm asking. Why? Why such high requirements? I and mean, even in the 15 questions that were asked, we, you've never asked that many questions in one service, in one weekend. You've never had that many questions. Because you look at this, you're like, man, this, this is a mountain to climb, Todd. Like, who fits? Why such high requirements? Because they are hard responsibilities. The very first word of verse 10 actually says this to us. I've got to make some serious tracks here. So can we look at Titus 1:10? The very first word, which is what? Stay with me, church. Four. This describes and explains the reason the requirements are so high. I've listed a few phrases from the the next few verses. Why do you need men of this caliber? Of this testimony and reputation and, rep- and proficiency? Wow, Todd, why? It's because the task is so great and responsibility so grave that not just anybody should say, yeah, I'll take a shot at that. Here's what's happening. In the church there on the island of Crete, but also even currently, 20 centuries later at least, for there are many who who are insubordinate, means unsubmissive, They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. He says there are many of those and what they're doing is they're upsetting whole families and they must be silenced and rebuked sharply. Now, when have you ever heard that said in church? Some of you today will probably think, wow, man, Todd's going to call them out. No, nothing I say will be done out of anything but love today and a sense of responsibility to God's word. But Paul does not mince words here with his protege Titus, does he? And he says, you've got whole families. And by the way, that's probably a a reference to house churches, which were comprised of whole families, correct? But he's probably saying here, there are many from the circumcision party, those who would apply man-made rules, personal preferences, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, they're out of this Judaizer, pharisaical tradition, so to so speak, and they must be muzzled, silenced. The idea is that of a hand over the mouth saying, quit talking. There's a, there's a simpler way to say that, you know. Six letters. Shut up! <laughs> Paul says to Titus, you must silence these people, they're upsetting whole families, it makes me think of this, and I'll just give you a few statements as I work through these verses. Just watch out for who influences you. Can we just admit that? Here, whole house churches, comprised, of course, of whole families, man, they were being influenced by folks who were actually not good for them. Empty talkers, deceivers, uh, unsubmissive. So watch out who influenced you. Watch out who you let into your house, who you read. Watch out who you listen to on your podcast, who preaches to you, who you listen to. Just, just watch out. Just be careful. And if you ever wonder a question about somebody, ask your elders. They'll help you with that. Not that you're ignorant or dumb, but let's just be honest. There are some men who spend a lot more time in this field than you are able to. So take advantage of that, correct? And say, hey, I'm hearing this. I'm, I'm watching this. I've got an odd feeling. Is this, is this measure up? And just get some input. Because there are people who want to influence you. So watch out. I heard Steve say this week to me, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That's right here, isn't it? Who you listen to, who we watch, who we regard as like authoritative. Man, that will affect the direction we go. He says they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So it's not just that they're teaching wrongly. They're teaching for the wrong reasons. So... When you see greed, when you see selfishness in play, it's a dead giveaway you've got a false teacher. And by the way, it's not just money. It's mentioned here, but I think Peter talks often about their sexual greed as well. What you find is a false teacher is a man without control of his appetites, which makes sense now when you read the requirements. What is one of the ones mentioned multiple times? Self-control. Sober-minded. When you see a teacher who's influencing you and his life as a whole is without any kind of restraint or control, it's usually a dead giveaway. It's a false teacher at hand. He says they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, this is those who live on the island, a prophet of their own. So here's kind of a, a false teacher who lived there. He said about the folks who lived on that island. And I think what he's referencing here is those who are being led astray, these, these families that are, are, are following suit. He says, they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So there was a tendency upon or in this um, island environment to just be very... Self-indulgent, out of control, undisciplined. And so those of the circumcision party, Judaizers, saw this and this is what they said. They said, man, we need to straighten you people out. Here's a list of 513 things you ought to start doing. Three of them are in the Bible. 510 of them aren't. But hey, if you'll do them, God will be pleased with you. Get to work. And so they took these uh, Slow-belly, or I should say low-belly people is what lazy glut means. It means a belly that's dragging the ground. Evil beast is someone with animal-like instincts. Liars is someone who can't tell themselves or others the truth. What Paul is saying is this. These are the people who've been, I don't want to use the word victimized, but they've been, they've been influenced by those who would say the key to getting out of your uncontrolled condition is to follow man made rules. But let's be clear about something man made responses never deal with the real root problem. Amen? Now, grace does. And I want you to hear this well God has a list as well. I often hear people try to say, well, we don't worry about lists. We don't do anything man says. Well, you know God has a list. Did you know that? He does. There's a list for those who are married about how you should act to your wife, to your husband, who you, that you can't sleep with anyone else but your spouse. God has a list for single people. God has a list for children. So, so I think we need to understand something here. What we're asking is, is it the list that's the problem or is it the power behind the list? And you see, here's Here's the issue. There's no magical list anywhere, but there is a supernatural, all-empowering God who changes lives. And the minute he regenerates you and births you by his Holy Spirit and puts you in his family, guess what? He empowers you to obey everything he's called you to do. He's empowered single people to be pure, married people to be pure. He's empowered elders and pastors to be self-controlled and disciplined. He's empowered leaders to be copyable. He's empowered children, teenagers, young people elementary kids, to obey their parents. Yeah, are you listening to me? It's not that the list is magical. It's that the God is powerful. And there is no powerful God behind man-made lists. It's just another person like you and like me who's trying to squeeze you to their mold. So the, the deal here, Paul's saying, man, these empty talkers, these deceivers, these unsubmissive people, yeah, they're coming to you with their list because they see you as an undisciplined kind of people, as just following your appetites. He says, Don't follow them. Even though it's true that Christians are this way, see what Paul says in verse 13? This is, this is true. Even though it's true that the Christians are this way, you should instead rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, Christians are this way, and false teachers have their list of rules, but none of that really changes the situation. Only thing that does is, is, is make it worse. Because you think man-made myths and commands of people will actually solve the problem. It doesn't. Only the truth solves the issue. That Jesus Christ has taken care of our sin in himself on the cross. And then grace empowers every bit of change in our life. And so Paul here says, do not encourage uh, people to listen to these false teachers. In fact, point the false teachers out. Rebuke sharply. And then tell the people not to devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul here now is speaking of this, this inevitable consequence for false teachers. He says their, their minds, their conscience is defiled. Nothing you do is going to help them in some sense. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. This kind of goes back to the idea that they are empty talkers. And by the way, when you're trying to find out, is this person telling me the truth or are they lying to me? Look for greed and the inability to control their appetites, but also, watch this, look for proof and not puff. I mean, anybody can talk a good game, can't they? But what does their life say? Paul says here that they have this puffing ability to profess things, but the truth is they deny him by how they live. They are actually, watch these words, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These three actually close the passage and they kind of book in the three that Paul used to start the passage, which were what? Verse 10 insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Six traits about false teachers. When I read these six traits and how Paul addressed them, I know now why Martin Luther said, pastors, love the sheep and kill the wolves. He said, help the sheep and silence the wolves, what Paul said. And I say kill there, I mean that euphemistically in one sense, all right? I think a lot of pastors, they're just too kind to false teachers. They allow them to stay in a congregation. They allow them access to people. And we end up having whole families upset, whole small groups, house churches, whole congregations divided and split when the pastor early on, when the pastors early on should have dealt with what was clearly against God's word. Now now, now this passage has a couple of areas that I want to show you in our lab this morning that I think you ought to make a decision on what you believe it says. Or excuse me, what you what you believe it says specifically, okay? Let's go here. I'm going to show you three, maybe two or three ways. I'll do, I'll do this pretty quickly. It's a little light on the screen here. Um, I'll make sure it's mirroring here. We should be on just in a minute here. We'll be good to go. There we go. Oops. Worship center, it went away. Where did it go? There it is. Okay. Okay. Did it come up yet? Worship center, there we go. I messed that up, guys, sorry about that. Okay. This is all about the word they, follow me here. This will be a little classroom instruction for you, but you need to hear this, okay? I want you to make a decision on who is it he's silencing, who is it he's rebuking, who is it he's correcting. It's a little light to read, but I think you can follow me. The word they, the pronoun they, is all through here, and it can be hard to follow sometimes. Look what he says. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they. See that? So he's referring to those people there, and they're listed as that. Now watch this. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, Said, Christians are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now we would automatically think, well, the them is the folks mentioned in verse 10 who are being silenced and upsetting whole families. And it could be, but I find this odd that a sharp rebuke, by the way, the, sharp, the word sharp means to cut a straight line, it means to pull something away from. In other words, be clear as crystal. When you correct a false teacher. It's not about feelings or preferences. Here's what God's word said. Draw a straight line man. So he says rebuke them sharply. That they may be sound in the faith. So if you contend that he's rebuking the false teachers. Then you're also contending that they can be sound in the faith. If you're contending that. You're also then saying this. That even though they are. Watch this. Detestable. Disobedient. Unfit for any good work insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. You're saying that by a sharp rebuke, they can be sound in the faith. Whew, that's a stretch to me. I'm not saying it's impossible. Some hold that view. But it seems like the ambiance of the text is you're dealing with people who are, who are, in some sense, are far gone. In fact, there's a perfect tense used in here for the word no, which could indicate to us that, that something has already been completed. That they're just, they're just already to the end. If you don't hold that, you could hold this view. Let's clear this off, can we? Let's start back over. Here's option number two. Again, here's the circumcision party. This is these folks here. And this would be who they refers to. They must be silenced. They are upsetting. They should not teach these things. One of their own, one of their own prophets, a Cretan, said, and watch this Cretans are always liars. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. It could be that the them refers to the Cretans. Perhaps the antecedent of that pronoun is the actual Cretans, and Paul is telling Titus to rebuke the Cretans sharply, not to follow false teachers. If you're following me, tracks, yes, I get that. Whether you agree or not, I'm not asking that, but do you see how this could be understood this way? And so we rebuke the Cretans, Paul said to Titus, rebuke the Cretans sharply, those who are following the false teachers, that they Maybe sound on the faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people. Now watch this. Who turn away from the truth. Back here again. He says their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess. So really he ends and begins with the description of false teachers. But in the middle he says to Titus. Love your church enough to rebuke them. Don't follow the false teachers. Cut a straight line for the church. Does that make sense? Could be an option. One more option. Let's clear this. Again, we'll say that empty talkers, deceivers, and insubordinates of this party here, they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families by teaching what they should not teach. One of their own said that Christians are liars. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. We'd say in this case, third option, that them still refers to false teachers. But then suddenly, some believe he changes to the church with the word they. Rebuke the teachers sharply that they, the church, in this case, Christian believers, would be sound in the faith. Does that make sense? And then he goes back, of course, and would say that the they, of course, through here, would still refer to uh, the false teachers. Where do I land? Um, We'll clear this and go away from our lab for a minute. I land with view number two. I think what he's saying is, draw a straight line for your church. Yeah, let it be clear. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. Silence the false teachers. But when it comes to your church, exhort and rebuke and encourage them with the greatest of clarity. Does that make sense? Now, If you don't see that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with the other views. I've read guys for the last several weeks who believe all three of those, but I do struggle with this. I, I I have a hard time seeing how Paul can describe the false teachers in such horrendous ways, and I mean that not as a, in, a, in a, that he's sending, just in a way that they, their, their character is terrible, and then say rebuke them sharply so they can get hold in the faith. It doesn't seem like they're even in the faith. Does that make sense? They're not even in the family. They're against the gospel. So for them to be sound or whole in the faith would take a work of God's spirit first. And I think Paul Paul is saying is, if you have folks in your church listening to these teachers, they're, they're ill, they're sick, they're spiritually weak, draw a straight line for them, rebuke them sharply so that they can get healthy. That's what the word sound is. It means to be hygienically, it's a medical term, it means hygiene. It means to be whole. You, I don't know that you make false teachers whole by a rebuke. You make false teachers whole, first of all, by regeneration. So my view, Paul is saying here, elders and pastors have two jobs. Silence false teachers, which means you've you got to be willing to address them, call them out, and in love, tell your church by drawing a straight line, this is wrong and this is right, watch out for these person. watch out for these people, They're not in line with God's word. These are man-made ideas, personal preferences, and they're telling you that it's what God requires, and that's not true. This is the hard responsibility of a pastor. Church, are you hearing me? And our culture knows very little about this. They will accuse anyone who speaks, as I'm speaking this morning, or any of your current elders, they'll go to cry, and they'll say, hate speech. In fact, if you disagree, you'll be considered a hater. So if if you're not up for the challenge of being misinterpreted on a regular basis and having to draw really straight lines for your people, don't be an elder. (laughs) It's, It's a hard responsibility, which is why there are such high requirements. But we don't get to determine the job description. God sets that. And why does he say it this way? I'll, I'll tell you, real just plain plain terms, because you matter. The church, he loves the church. He bought it with his blood. And so he will do everything possible, and he wants his leaders to do everything possible to help the church stay on track and whole and sound and healthy. In light of all that, we'd say this in a simple way. Here's kind of our take-home truth today. Using God's word, biblical shepherds courageously and kindly protect God's flock. You see, really, the two actions you have here are all about protection. We're not trying to pick out, pick on false teachers or trying to focus on them. We're focused on the flock, amen, and protecting you. And knowing that means that we have to do two things. Quiet the wolves and correct the sheep. Show you where the good pasture is. No, no, don't eat over there. (laughs) That's some bad grass. Let's go over here. Here's a much better pasture. And so we do these things courageously and kindly. Protect God's flock by quieting wolves, correcting the sheep. And this is why credibility and proficiency matter. You can't just say, well, he's a smooth talker. We gave him a month. He sounded good. Look at his life, look at his family, look at the long track record, and ask, Can you teach God's word? That's what's required. And if if, proficiency and credibility matter because the sheep matter, amen? Now, I've got to wrap this up. I'm way over time. I need to cover a couple things, though. If you think this is odd, here's a list of verses where these very commands are prescribed for pastors. 2 Timothy 4. I just just kind of worked backwards from Titus. I didn't include ones in Hebrews. I didn't include some other ones in the Gospels that maybe could be seen this way. But just here's some just working back through the pastoral epistles and one in Romans and one in Acts. All of them use these kinds of words. Take a picture of this real quick because I want to show you the words that these verses use when it comes to quieting the wolves, silencing false teachers, and helping correct the church. Here's the words used in these verses. Let me show you this list. When it comes to stopping the wolves, quieting them, words like stopping, identifying, rebuking, clarifying, enduring, charging, watching, avoiding. When it comes to correcting the sheep, words like guarding, feeding, reminding, instructing, commanding, rebuking, exhorting, modeling. You see, too many pastors think, well, we're businessmen just in the church that's a terrible scenario what we should instead say is we're shepherds and this is not to decry good businessmen what i'm saying is this businessmen are great because they're businessmen Does that make sense we should utilize their skills and talents in a way that helps the church for sure but i don't think it's wise for a pastor to become a businessman and just trying to run the church like a marketing firm who can i draw in and attract you might actually attract a bunch of wolves Instead, man, gather in some people who can help you run the machine of the church. We have some great businessmen in this church. I mean, I look at your faces now, and you do a wonderful job. And you, you pastor people well, you shepherd well, your company and your, your employees. That's awesome. Gather in their expertise and their skills so that the church and its elders can do the one thing that God asked them to do. Protect the flock from false teachers. Does that make sense? I thank God for our businessmen here and the men on our staff who are savvy at business. They handle so much the machine because I would be a terrible, I am a terrible businessman. I'm not good at it at all. I feel like the one thing I can do decently well is help you understand the Bible and spot air and lead you that way and lead you to good pasture. I think that's what pastors do. Does that make sense, guys? These words are not, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't think it odd if your pastors rebuke you. In other words, what we I mean by that is cut a straight line. Don't think, hey, you're being mean to me. Back off, pastor. What's with that? That's what our culture says. And the church has to be lovingly and appropriately counterculture when the culture's wrong. We, we, we know this is true. In the dietary world, if you wanted to help people get whole and healthy, you would say stop eating junk food and eat nutritionally no one would no one say, hey, you're a hater of snack foods, man. You're, you're a processed food hater. I'm going to arrest you. You wouldn't say that. You'd say, hey, that's, that's true. Nothing wrong with eating processed food. Nothing wrong with snacks. I ate them. But hey, if you want to really get healthy, you probably ought to avoid that. I, they would admit that. They would say, yeah, that's true. We, we'd say that in the medical field. I talked to a doctor, a nurse practitioner this week. and I said to her, hey, can our bodies fight, or can they build immunity? She said to some degree, yes. We we're talking about how and when and where, and I don't understand all that. But you have to get rid of infection. Your body can build up some type of immunities at times. And, and we'd say exercise. We'd say, we'd say that's fine. We wouldn't say, hey, do whatever you want. Whatever your body says, just do it, man. You'll be healthy. We wouldn't say that. We, would, we wouldn't say, hey, man, you, you're an infection hater. We wouldn't say that to that either. We wouldn't say this even about agriculture. I just let the weeds grow. Yeah, man, your garden doesn't matter. In fact, weeds are good for your garden. Just let them choke out all the fruit, the tomatoes, the cucumbers. Man, those, those weeds are good for it. And don't hurt the weeds' feelings, okay? <laughs> Relax. Don't you know? Every, everyone has a right to how they feel. Leave the weeds alone. None of you would say that. No, no person would go to Iowa Farmer and say, listen, you need to ease up on the pesticide or whatever they call it. I don't even, I'm not a farmer either, but... okay. But only in theology do we say, man, God's being really mean here. What's he drawing us in a straight line for? Back off, God. Don't you know we, we want to live the way we feel? We want to embrace our appetites and our indulgences. Come on, God. Only in spiritual matters do we, do we shake our fist in God's face and act like he's being unrealistic. He's the creator. He made us and knows what's best for us. Does that make sense, guys? So when your pastors come alongside to exhort, instruct, remind, and feed you, and to guard you, don't call them haters. Don't say they're narrow-minded. They're actually doing their job. This is why I want to say to you, and I agree with Chris 100%. Chris Eller, our pastor of small groups, he's posted on his website just a good warning for us about a false teacher that's kind of been revealed the last few weeks, and that's Jen Hatmaker. Some of you read her. I know that. I would caution you to be careful in reading Jen Hatmaker now. Her most recent comments have indicated she thinks God's commands are pliable. They're adjustable. I'm not here this morning to debate the issue she talks about, which is same-sex marriage. That's not my point this morning. Plenty's been written about that. You know our stance on that. My point is to say to you, and I, I don't want to be afraid to warn you against her writings. That's what I'm saying to you. Well, Todd, I can't leave you'd call her out. As an elder slash pastor, your health matters most to me. Now, I have posted on my website six or seven links to, her art, to uh, what she is now believes, those who responded to it, Chris's article. Uh, I'd encourage you to go check those out. Her hermeneutic is flawed. I mean, just take away the feeling aspect, just the hermeneutic. Of how you see scripture? It's flawed. And if you begin to under, to believe the Bible can be seen that way, now watch this. You won't just get sex wrong. Listen, church. Listen. Listen very carefully. You'll get sin wrong. And what's at stake when you get sin wrong? Your soul. I'll say to you this, I love Brandon and Jen Hetmig to the degree that I can. I don't know them, but to the degree that I can, I love them. I think they would, they, have, they would have a great voice for Christ if it were a right voice. They have an incredible platform, but they're wrong on this one. And they're becoming divisive. They're unsubmissive to 2,000 plus years of church history It's an evidence of chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis called it. We're not the newest guys on the block who suddenly got the newest revelation. I'd be very careful of listening to her and to him. And why do you say that, Todd? Because you matter. I'm not mad. I'm not hateful. I am for healthy churches who are holding on to the faithful word those are usually led by elders who are doing exactly that. And by the way, let's don't think that we're some new kind of elder. We're not the first to do this, amen? 500 years ago, a monk named Martin Luther stood up against false teachers who felt that they could receive money for the dead and change their eternal state indulgences, who felt they had more authority in scripture at times or at least equal to scripture he called them out he actually wrote his thesis 95 statements and nailed it at the door asking folks to come dialogue with them about. that's how they did that in that day they would nail their beliefs and then say I want to meet in so and so place a dialogue no one showed up to dialogue with Martin Luther but what began was the reformation his issue wasn't a sin his issue was the souls of people in that church who were being led astray by false teachers This is why the author of Hebrews would say in this singular verse, he says, you obey and submit to your leaders for they're keeping watch over your, say it with me, souls. In in, in the greatest of transparency, listen, do I care about your stance on marriage and sex? Um, Justification. We could list a number of items here. Yes, I do. But why do I care about those? Because if you get outside of the Bible, there's something far more dangerous occurring. You're going to lose your soul. And this is why someone responded to Jen Hatmaker with this incredible bit of insight. She said if, and she's come, she's come out of that circle of same-sex marriage proponents she was one married and had a lot of uh, those beliefs but she was converted and saved and she read those articles and she said this rosaria butterfield's her name she said if i'd have heard those words when i was still an unbeliever it would not have been a ticket to freedom it would have been a millstone around my neck When you trade God's commands for your own appetites, you're not, just giving, you're not just getting one sin to enjoy. You're losing your soul. And who is it that God says should come and draw a straight line for the church? Elders and pastors. So I want to say to you, and I mean this, I love you guys. And whether you hear me well or hear me wrong, I don't know. But I'm not mad or against Those people in that sense. I am for God and for his word and for his church. And to the best of my ability, I'll draw a straight line every time. Because your spiritual health matters. I want you to be sound, okay? Can we go to God in prayer?